been uh, in a series called uh, Aliens and Strangers in First Peter. And um, so a couple of review questions. I'm trying to make sure you're awake this morning because I know that it's, it's Sunday and you're, it's the day of rest and you want your brain to rest today, but we're going to exercise your brain a little bit. So who wrote First Peter? Paul. That was a joke. You, you heard the sarcasm as he said the name Paul. I heard the sarcasm there. Uh, Paul writes everything. That's not true. Um, so who wrote First Peter? Jesus did through. Who wrote First Peter? You guys really don't know who wrote First Peter? Like really? You're just stalling. You're like we're not going to play your game. Who wrote First Peter? Peter. Okay. Man, that took forever. My head hurts. I need to sit down. Um, all right, where was he when he wrote it? Another question. A city. What city was he in? Not Bethlehem. This is not going well. I had such high hopes for you. It starts with an R. It's not Rochester, New York. No. Um, it rhymes with gnome. Oh, you said, say it louder, man. I can't hear you people. Jeez. All right, uh, okay, you're not going to get this question. I'm just going to say it. Who is it written to? Well, Dave, I'm glad you asked that question. Let me answer it for you. Um, it is written to a group of people that are in, a, in what's now modern day, the country of modern day. Turkey, you got it. But only because Thanksgiving is coming and you were thinking about turkeys. So that's why you remembered that. Um, so, okay, here's why he's writing. He's writing because there's persecution happening where he's at in Rome, and there's also persecution happening in the churches in that area that's now known as Turkey. And if it's not physical, it's actually social and intellectual persecution happening in that part of the world. So Peter's encouraging them to be aliens and strangers in their culture and to be set apart from the culture, but also to speak into the culture. We talked about two weeks ago about how this concept of, of resident alien, what that means is you live here, but you're not from here. And so you're a resident alien. You are um, of a different place, but you are here in the world uh, proclaiming the gospel um, as a resident alien. Here's a recap of the first few weeks of our talks. Week one, go back, please. Yeah, uh, who was Peter and why did he write? That was week one. Week two was about um, this great salvation that we proclaim, the gospel. And then uh, week three, uh, Megan did an awesome job. Give her a big clap for teaching us about genuine faith through suffering. And then we had a week off because of Connect Weekend. Then we had last week, Elby did a great job. Is Elby here today? Where is he? I see Chris. Where's Elby? Elby's not here, but Chris, okay. So Elby did a great job, too, talking to us about um, what it means to live holy in the culture that we are part of. So before we get to today's topic... I need to ask some questions. And normally, um, you guys don't like to have to raise, you guys don't like to answer questions. You don't like to have to raise your hand. And that requires, like, energy and, like, muscle movement. And so you don't like having to do that. I understand that. But I need everyone's participation in this as I simply ask you to raise your hand here in a moment, okay? So I need to ask, uh, raise your hand here in a second. Um, So how many of you were in the main service this morning? Raise your hand. All eight of you, or ten of you, so not that many. Okay, I'm just trying, I'm trying to track here. Um, how many of you have heard um, 
at least parts of this series on the church that we're going through? Raise your hand. So maybe like a third, less than a third. You've heard parts of the church series that we've been doing. Okay. Um, So there's going to be some overlap with today's passage and this church series. You're going to hear some things repeated. But if you read the Gospels, Jesus repeated himself. And so I want to be like Jesus, so I'm going to repeat myself a little bit this morning as we talk through um, the text today. So I want to start off with a question, and you're going to discuss this at your tables. Um, This will be your first discussion question this morning. Imagine you had a friend who said, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. So as a result, this person has stopped attending church altogether. How would you handle this situation with your friend? What would you say or do? So go ahead and discuss that for a few minutes at your tables. Okay, so real quick, a show of hands again. How many of you all, raise your hand, you, and just be totally honest. There's no judgment. We all agree, no judgment uh, this morning. Um, How many of you would not say or do anything? Raise your hand. Just be bold and confident. You just wouldn't say or do anything. Just raise your hand. It's it's okay. Just shoot it up. Like, no one's going to judge you. I'll raise it with you. How about that? All right, so being honest, all right. You've had this happen before. All right, how many of you would at least try to find out why they feel this way? Raise your hand. Oh, we're so empathetic. Oh, yes. All right. All right, so that's the middle, middle ground. Um, how many would take the next step and actually speak into it and encourage them to re-engage with the church? Raise your hand. Okay. All right, how many would be like, yeah, man, the church stinks. Stay away. Raise your hand. <laughs> that person probably isn't here this morning because they're like, yeah, forget the church. Okay, so what are some reasons why uh, people feel this way? There's a few reasons why people can often feel this way toward the church. Here's a few of them. Um, the church is supposed to be a family, but it can often feel like this cold, impersonal institution. I think we've all experienced that. It can feel like just a faceless organization or institution. That's one reason. The second reason is the church is full of hypocrites who don't practice what they preach. We've all heard that um, accusation before. And the third thing is the church or the people in the church have hurt me in some way. So I'm sure it's happened to you before as well. You've heard that kind of thing before. Um, So all those, I think, are relevant reasons why many would feel this way. And so do these things happen? Yes, they do. But are they reasons to leave the church? I would say they're not reasons to leave the church. Let me give you an example. Um, We would never say of someone, if they were going through difficult family issues, we'd never say, hey, just just leave your family. Just abandon your family. You know, it's just the family's messed up. We would encourage them. We would say, no, like, let's, let's redeem your view of family right? Let, let's change how you're viewing family and how you're seeing family. Let's redeem that. Um, I got a friend, one of my best friends growing up, I'd say probably my best friend growing up, um, is going through a horrible time in his life right now back home. And he's my age, he's about 41, and he, his wife just left him. 
and he's got five kids, all ranging from 14 all the way down to like six or seven. And so he and I have been talking on the phone and just, I mean, he's obviously just distraught. Like she just, she just left him and she's looking for happiness. She's looking for her own, I got to find happiness. I got to find, and I think I would hope that all of us would, would say to his wife, Catherine, we'd say to her, we would say, you need to redeem your view of family. And we wouldn't encourage her when things get tough, because things have been tough in their relationship, to just, yeah, walk out on your family. We would never encourage that. We would never stand for that. We would say, no, let's redeem your, how you see the family. And the same thing needs to happen in the church. We need to encourage one another to redeem how we view the church instead of sitting idly by and letting people just walk away from the church and abandon the church and, and letting the church just fall by the wayside. Last week, uh, Pastor Shannon Sword talked about the church as family. And so the church, the church is difficult. The church has hard things about it. And... Um, but we should want to recapture the vision for the church. This is the point of the whole series we're doing on the church, is to recapture the vision and purpose of the church and for God's people. So the series written in First Peter is titled Aliens and Strangers. And I will tell you that when the world looks at Christians being committed to this glorious mess called the church, it's going to look strange to them. It's going to look strange to the world when they see people this committed to the body of Christ. So today we're going to look at how the church is to be characterized by, um, by love. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll start in verse 22 today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. And Peter writes, you got to be careful. See, you almost always say, like, and, and Paul writes, this is Peter, uh, Peter writes, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. If we could boil down what Paul just said there, I think we could say it like this, sincere love flows from a new birth. And you'll see these concepts in this passage. You see sincere, this sincere love. You see this comes from this place of being born again. Like when you have this new birth, this transformation through Jesus in your life, you are now able to love in a profound way, a sincere way, an authentic way, a real way. And so in the body of Christ, we should see this sincere love being played out in the body. And I know most of us, we just say, you've heard the statement, love is a verb, love is action. And that's true. But love involves action, but love also involves um, real affection. Like really feeling something affectionately for people. Not just, um, you know, grinning and bearing it and trying just to, to muster up like love in action only, but it should also be an affection that you have for the people. And this is, a, this is what sincere love means. So sincere means real and not two-faced. 
In our culture, um, even the unbeliever hates hypocrisy. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how even the, the unbeliever will call Christians out for being hypocrites? And, and many Christians will say, well, there's a bunch of hypocrites there. I'm not going to go there anymore. I'm going to go somewhere else where there, there are no hypocrites. And so people hate hypocrisy. We hate when people are two-faced. We value honesty. I, I would tell you that in, in our culture today, I think we have more respect for the person who's real but hateful than the person who's fake but acts loving, right? Like, don't you have more respect for the person who's, like, just a jerk and they're hateful and they're upfront about it versus the person who pretends to be loving to you but is um, stabbing you in the back at every turn? I think we can all agree with that. That if someone's going to be loving, we want it to be sincere and authentic and not two-faced or hypocritical. And then uh, Peter uses this word. He says, brotherly. We can also put sisterly. Do you, do you girls feel like left out sometimes in the, in the wording of the Bible? And I understand how you might feel that way. But we can also say sisterly, this brotherly and sisterly love that should be taking place in the body of Christ. And what Peter's saying is because we're born into this new family, well, then the love should look like family. But here's the problem with that. Is if Peter's comparing this love to family, do you, do you see the problem that we might have in our culture today? Is that many of us don't have a frame of reference for family, a loving family. Many of us, some in the room here, you have no frame of reference for what love in a family looks like. And so when Peter uses this word like, yeah, it should be like family, to you that might be like, well, that, that'd be nice. I, I would love to have the model of family to look at so I can try to emulate that in the body of Christ. And so I understand it's difficult. This is tough for us to wrap our minds and hearts around because many of us here don't have that as an example of what it should look like. And I know especially, even if you have a loving family, and if we really pressed you and said, like, okay, your family is together, your family is loving, um, many in the room right now, you would say... Um, that it doesn't feel that way because, you know, there's just stuff between mom and dad and, and me, and we just, we're not getting along. And so you're, you're feeling the weight of their authority right now. You're feeling the weight of maybe your rebellion right now. And so in that sense, it might be tough to think of love in the family in this way. But I want to um, just give you kind of an analogy here. What if what if, imagine at, at 25 or 30, at age 25 or 30, down the road, um, you discovered that you had like a long-lost brother or sister. Now, first of all, you'd be like, mom and dad, you got some explaining to do. Like, what's the deal? You know, that's kind of weird. But, um, but you would, let's, say, let's pretend for a moment that you had this long-lost brother or sister that you meet later on in life. You never knew about this person. Well, What's going to happen? Are you going to feel like you want to get to know that person? Are you going to feel like, yeah, th this person is blood. Like, I want to know who they are. My brother, my sister, 
Like you're going to feel this compulsion to want to get to know them because they're, they're family. This is a new person that you've discovered in your family. You want to know who they are. They're blood. I mentioned this in the, in the sermon about two weeks ago in the main service. But, um, you know, really popular today are things like Ancestry.com and DNA.com. It's mostly older people. They like that kind of stuff. Um, I've not done those things, but my, my sister-in-law, my sister-in-law's dad was in the CIA, like back in the 80s. And so he, he is a big research nerd. He loves research. And he put this genealogy thing together for my family, and this thing has like a thousand people in it. It's crazy. This is done by the CIA. This is so cool. And, uh, and I'm reading through it. Um, just a different people, and I'm like, it goes back 10 generations. He has traced our family all the way back to um, 10 generations to a guy named James Tate who was born in Virginia in 1690-something. And I'm reading it, and, and it says that this guy and his wife, they lived um, in the same parish as jo- George and Martha Washington. And I'm like, that's pretty cool to think about. Like, what if my family, do they know the Washingtons? That's pretty amazing to think about. And then a couple of generations later, there's a guy, um, I think his name was, uh, was Oliver Tate. He was like in the Civil War. Another guy was like in the American Revolution and served on a ship in the Virginia State Navy. And so you're reading about these people. It's like we all know we have ancestors. But when you start seeing names and like stories and you start realizing like these are real people. And if, if, we could, if you could meet some of these people, like if you... If you could meet someone that you never knew existed that was related to you by blood, I would imagine that you would have this compulsion to want to know who they are and want to truly know them. Why? Because they're blood. You recognize you have this blood relationship and you want to get to know them because of that. And so when you come into this room, I know that you don't walk in this room and think, oh, this is my family. We don't tend to think like that. And you would tell me, you'd be like, man, the people in here, like, they're not my family. This is not, we're not related through blood. And I would just tell you that, yes, you are. You are related through blood, and it's the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus binds everyone in this room together. And so in that sense, you are family. And the Bible talks about Spiritual family superseding even physical family. And so you are blood relatives. If you're a believer in Christ, you're a blood relative to any other believer in Christ. And so what that should compel you to do is, I want to know these people because they're family. And so the church should be like this, like a family. When you look at the next section here, it says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So what in the world is Peter talking about now? He's going off about like, you know, botany. Is that the right word for plants? I forget. Is that correct? I got it right? Sweet. 
All right, so plant science. He's talking about, like, plants, and what's he getting at as he says this? Well, he's referring back to the previous passage where he talks about the imperishable seed and the perishable seed. And he's talking about our natural physical selves. We're, we're dying. Our perishable seed, our natural physical selves are dying. So you want to hear a depressing thought? Do you guys want to hear a depressing thought? Yes, please. Um, from the moment you are born, you are dying. You understand that? Every second that ticks, you are getting closer and closer to death. Do you know this? We're, 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 we're perishable in our natural bodies. Just think for a minute how much emphasis we put on our bodies, right? We glory in our bodies. Whole careers and, and jobs are centered around um, someone's ability, like professional athletes. A professional athlete, their whole career in life is centered around the ability of their body. Modeling careers are centered around someone's look and how they look. And so we organize our lives around our abilities and how we look and how attractive we are and that kind of thing. But when you think about it, the physical world, the physical body is so fleeting and so just easily just blown away like, like, like fading flowers and fading grass. Um, are there any basketball fans in the room? Did you see the gruesome injury? This past week on opening night, Celtics versus Cavs. Anyone, anyone see that live like I did? You guys don't watch NBA, I guess. I watched it. LB. All right, so if you, anybody see the replay on something else, you saw it later when the word got out. So I'm watching this with my, with my kids. And um, my little 7-year-old, 10-year-old, I'm watching it. And it happens, and I'm like, Oh, my, what, what just happened to this guy on the court? If you don't know, like, this guy went up for this, tried to do an alley-oop, and he comes down, and his leg bends up under him, and his leg breaks so bad. I mean, you don't see bone through skin, but you see what's happening under the skin, and it was not pretty. It was disgusting. And they saw a close-up, and my daughter, she goes, in her seven-year-old wisdom, she goes, she goes, Daddy, they're, like, going to put that guy in an ambulance and not stop for red lights or anything. And I was like, my daughter is a genius, you know? I was like, you figured it out, Sienna. You should be a medical trainer, you know? Um, so my kids see this. And, of course, as a good dad, I have to rewind it, like, four times and let them watch it again. My wife's like, you traumatize our children, you know. And, but here, look at this guy. This guy, Gordon Hayward, this multi-manellar athlete. His, his job is centered around his body and his ability. And in one second, he's in a heap on the floor, has no ability for the next several months. And this is really, a, I think, a picture of all of us. Like when we center our life on the physical and even our bodies and, and just the, um, the, the, the place that we're in in our youth. When you center your identity on that, it's temporary, it's fleeting. And so what Peter's trying to remind us is that this is fleeting, but the Word of God remains forever. The Word of God is the only permanent thing that we have to hang on to. 
He's saying every human family is born of this perishable seed and is flawed but, and temporary, but God's family is born through his word and is eternal and is going to be glorified. Look at the next phrase here. It says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So now he lists these things. He says, so because you've been born now as a new person in Jesus of imperishable seed. Now put away these things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Malice would be intentionally trying to cause harm to other people. Deceit and hypocrisy are similar to each other, and um, this would be two-faced, being two-faced, being one way here and then some other way somewhere else. There's envy. That's to dislike someone who um, because they, they have something that you want, or they have a certain thing about them that you desire. There's slander. This is speaking evil of people to bring them harm. If you want to look for a common theme with these different sins mentioned here, it's that all of these things destroy community. They all do. So this is the opposite of, a, of sincere love. Now listen, I, I try to keep my finger on the pulse of just like where we're at um, as a group. I think it's my role as a pastor. It's my job as a pastor is to keep my finger on the pulse of just like where things are. And, and sometimes you feel like, okay, we're doing okay. And other times you feel like, you know, it's not, doesn't feel that, as much like that. And I will tell you that the last maybe, I don't know, year or so, um, I'm... I'm wondering how unified we are. I'm wondering how um, in community we are. Like there are times and seasons of this youth group where I, I can sense that these students like want to be together. Like they, they, they want to be around each other. And there are seasons where I feel like that's not the case. And I feel like right now we're in a season where that's just not really the case. I feel like we're in a season right now where it's like we kind of come, we do our thing, we but we're just very individualistic about it. And I don't sense right now that we just want to be around each other. And so I want to put, point you back to this text here, this, this last verse we looked at. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And I don't know the, the cause of some of that stuff. Um, it might just be you're just really busy. I don't know, but... Um, I'm praying and I'm hoping that if, if these things, if malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, if, if, if those are the things that are causing just kind of what I'm sensing right now in us, I'm praying for repentance. I'm praying that there will be repentance, like real repentance, an acknowledgement that, you know, yeah, I, I got to own my part. I got to talk to that person and, and make things right with them. Or I need to talk to a leader about some of this stuff. But um, I'm praying for repentance. Because what can often happen in a youth group, especially, is you only got four years in the high school deal. So what can happen is you just go, I mean, I got, I only got like a few months left. I got like a year left. I got two years left. I mean, I'll just, I'll say later. I'll go to college, and I'll, get, I'll, I'll go do my thing in college when I go to college, and I'm just going to check out right now. I'm just going to tell you, though, 
the, the students that I see that don't make it through their graduating year and stay committed to the body of Christ, they don't do so well when they leave and go off to college. And I'm just speaking from experience. So right now you think to yourself, like, I ah, just, you know, later for the church. But I'm just telling you that if, if you let Satan's deception just creep into your heart, your mind, and your soul as you, you know, justify yourself and justify your actions in, the, in these areas, it's not going to lead to good places. It's not going to lead to good places. So I'm praying for whatever it is, I'm praying for repentance in us. And it's got to start with me, our leadership, and, and, and many of us in the room, but I'm praying for repentance. If it does come back to some of these things, that there'd be repentance and, and, and reconciliation in some of these areas. I want to shift gears now to this last little section in this passage, and um, you know, one of the biggest questions people ask is, okay, how do I grow? How do I grow spiritually? And this next passage, I think, answers this question. So look at this next uh, sta- statement here by Peter. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So I don't want to make this sermon awkward, but we have to discuss what Peter just said here, if you get the analogy he's going with here. So newborn infants um, and, and, and milk, like this is the picture he uses. So I apologize. Um, this won't be too graphic, but just bear with me on this. Uh, but when a baby is born, how does it act towards food? It, it's just craving. Like it, it's got this, it comes out of the womb like just wailing and crying and, and desiring to eat, Right? So they crave and they, they, they cry and they wail for food. Now, um, there is a condition called failure to thrive. And so when a mom is neglectful, and this happens where if a mom can't nurse her baby and she's actually neglecting to feed her baby formula or whatever, whatever else, it's called failure to thrive. What that means is the baby actually stops being hungry and stops developing and growing. And so it's this weird deal where even though the baby is starving, the baby stops being hungry because mom or or dad isn't feeding the baby. And the same thing happens when an adult becomes anorexic. When they starve themselves, they become um, so sick, and their mind becomes so distorted in their hunger that even though they're hungry... They don't really feel hungry. And I think the same thing happens to us spiritually. That we're like spiritual anorexics. Like we don't really even crave God's word. We don't really even crave hunger because we've just not even responded to the initial hunger pains, right? I mean, physical hunger for you now, like you know you feel the pains of hunger, um, if we, don't, if we don't feed ourselves physically, we call it a condition. We call it what? Hangry, right? Everybody here get hangry? It's actually a word now. It's actually an official word I found in the dictionary. It says, here's, they actually gave a pronunciation in case you don't know how to pronounce hangry. 
uh, it's hangry, and it's bad-tempered or irritable as a result of hunger. And if you're in a spelling bee, use it in a sentence. I get very hangry if I miss a meal. So when you and I get hungry, we get hungry, we're angry, so we get hangry, and that's good and right because there should be an irritability whenever you are hungry and you don't eat. And the same should happen to us spiritually. You should feel it whenever we don't go to God's Word and eat and take His Word in. You know, many of us, we complicate spiritual growth, don't we? We tend to complicate uh, spiritual growth. But there is a simplicity to spiritual growth like the simplicity of feeding a baby, or you eating when you're hungry. We don't need to overcomplicate spiritual growth. In fact, when I was, became a dad at the age of 30, and my wife was going to be feeding him, um, it, was, it just blew my mind. I know as a guy I knew this, but it's like I didn't fully know it, because it's amazing, the human body is amazing, that my wife can eat like fajitas and whatever else, and somehow the body produces just what the baby needs. And as a guy, I was like, like, don't we have to give the baby something else besides just that? Like we, can, we can give him like a little bit of, I don't know, some enchiladas or something else, like just kind of spoon feed him some other stuff. They can't just live on that, can they? And then you realize, no, it's, it's pretty simple. God's made it pretty simple. And I think the, the same is true for us spiritually, that God has made things simpler than we think he has when it comes to feeding ourselves spiritually. So imagine this for a minute. What if someone super skinny came to you and said, you know, I just don't understand why I'm not growing spiritually. Or I mean, I'm sorry, physically. I'm not sure why I'm not growing physically. And this person is super skinny, and they, and they say things to you like, I've been trying all these things. I go to these big gatherings with a few hundred people. We stand up and we sing songs about food. And then there's this guy that preaches for like 35 minutes and talks a lot about food and the benefits of food. And then we um, go on Wednesdays, we go and sit in circles, and we talk about the benefits of eating food. And then you would say, well, do you ever actually eat? And they say, no. And you say, well, that's just crazy. Like, pick up some food and eat it is how you'd respond. And the same is true of us spiritually. Like you go and you hear people talk about the benefits of reading God's Word. You hear a preacher preach about it. You sit in circles on Wednesdays and talk about it. And maybe you even carry a Bible around hoping some of that will rub off on your brain somehow. And yet the question is, do you ever actually pick it up and read it? Do you read it? Do you take God's Word in and read it? When it comes to growth, we make it so complicated. I think this verse brings us back to simplicity. If, if, if you just pick it up and read it, you will grow up into salvation. There's a quote by D.L. Moody. He says, I never saw a useful Christian who was not a student of the Bible. I could just drop this mic right now if I want, right? There was never a useful Christian who also wasn't a student of the Bible. You can go serve. You can go attend stuff. You can serve. You can 
be in leadership, you can do all, but if you're not a student of the Bible, you are not a useful Christian. What are you going to point people to as you lead them and disciple them if you yourself are not consumed with understanding who God is through his word? So this talk, I know, seems to kind of range all over the place. And is it about loving people? Is it about reading the Bible? Well, it's about both. It's about both. If you're going to love people well and put away all these things that destroy community, it's going to come from you growing up into salvation by reading God's Word. This is the only way to become a person who loves Jesus but also loves his church is someone who spends time with God and you're, you're ingesting the things of God through reading it but also through community. Last quote. Since Jesus loved the church, so also will we, even when that is hard or even seems impossible. And so we do not walk away from our brothers and sisters. We walk toward them in sincere love as God did to us in Christ. Go ahead and finish your last few questions at your tables.